Welcome to the Aristia podcast, where experts talk about excellence. Our podcast format includes a young professional early in their career talking to an expert for academic and industry insights. At some point, we turn the tables around, where the expert asks the young professionals about their agonies, dreams, and aspirations about the field. In today's podcast, we're pleased to have Dr. Ioli Calavrezu, Damtron Oaks Professor of Byzantine Art History at the Department of History of Art and Architecture at Harvard University. The interviewers are Dimitris Karambas, Doctor of Philosophy Candidate at University of Oxford and Faculty of Classics and Oxford Center for Maritime Archaeology, and Georgios Cholakis, PhD candidate at the Institute for the Study of Ancient World at New York University. Welcome, Professor Calavrezu, and uh, thank you for doing this interview. Uh, you are currently a Dumbarton Oaks Professor of Byzantine Art History at the Department of History of Art and Architecture at Harvard University. Before taking your current position, you have taught at the University of California, Los Angeles, and at the Ludwig Maximilians Universität in Munich. We were wondering if you could describe for us the academic journey that brought you to Harvard. Well, it's along with many changes. Thank you, first of all, for having me here. And uh, I would love to answer questions like this um, because I uh, began uh, being interested in sort of ancient world, the history, objects, because as a child, I had I was on the island of Chios and the British school was excavating next to the house that we was we were living. So I had the opportunity with seven, eight years old to go and observe them, uh, what they were doing. So I was quite interested in the discoveries that they were making, even objects uh, of everyday use and even seeds and everyday sort of food remains that were burnt. I also um, was interested in architecture for some time later in my life, and I wanted to become an architect. And I had sort of forgotten and put aside the ancient history and uh, archaeology. Uh, And at that time, I was living with my parents in Germany, and where I was studying also German. Uh, and there were some changes. So at, at the end, I, did, I could not go to the architecture school because they changed the universities there. And the Department of Architecture moved to another city. So I thought, well, that interest of mine in archaeology wasn't so bad. I really liked it. And I was so excited. I remember the feelings I had for it. So I went to the classics department at the University of Hamburg, and I began to study there. Mm. When you study uh, archaeology, you also study history of art at the same time at the German university. They make it as a secondary field that you have to participate. And there I had a great professor that really made the lectures that he was giving so interesting, much more interesting than the way the archaeologists at that time were looking at objects. Uh, They were measuring, uh, cataloging, organizing, identifying painters and so on who did what vase. But 
the classes I took in history of art gave me another dimension because history became more prominent, patronage became more prominent to, to why a work of art existed. And so um, this professor said to me, why don't you go to Berkeley as a visiting uh, student just for an exchange? So I went there and I really liked what they were doing. And so uh, I switched from archaeology and classics, which I was studying also the ancient languages, to history of art. And not only that, I decided to stay, not go back to Germany where I had began my studies. And I stayed in Berkeley. And so that's where my degree is. And in the United States, you know, um, you have many chances that come without you doing too much. There are sort of opportunities that fall out of nowhere suddenly. And I was uh, giving a, my master's thesis as a talk uh, at the University of UCLA, not Berkeley, where they had one of the first graduate student um, uh, workshops. And from one day to the next, I was asked if I wanted to have the position there <laughs> of assistant professor in Byzantine history, although the talk I gave was on a Roman fresco in Luxor in Egypt. Anyway, they gave me, they did some interviews on the phone and that was it. So suddenly I was an assist, adjunct assistant because I had no PhD yet. Uh, and um, I worked there for eight years. Munich asked me to go teach. And so I went and spent about three years teaching at the University of um, in Munich, uh, where because of my German also that I had from the years before. And then Harvard came around and um, made me an offer. So that's the career mm -hmm. path. Without me, I mean, that's what I was saying, that things come from somewhere, you know, without you really pushing for something, you know, or being driven to have that position or to want that position. Uh, I was very lucky in my life, I would say, because these opportunities came. And when you have an opportunity, you have to think about it if you want to take it uh, or not. And I did it every time, although it meant many changes, you know, from one culture to another culture and back to the United States. So I, it took a little courage on my part to decide to do it. But um, that's that's the way it went. And I've been here at Harvard now for 30 something years, 31 years. Oh, that's pretty nice. That's a long, a long mm. way of answering mm -hmm. your question. But I wanted to point out that there are moments where you switch, you change, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, these changes turn out for the best. Probably mm -hmm. you never know it at that point, mm -hmm. you know. And that's what history is also all about. You know, there are disasters and from one disaster, you end up having a different direction of things developing in a culture. Um, so um, in, in a small way, in a personal life, it's the same thing that happens that one has to I don't know, weigh the pros and cons and make mm -hmm. decisions. 
Uh, that's very nice. That's very nice indeed. And in that long journey uh, with uh, that, I assume you met a lot of professors and people that inspired your work. Uh, if you had to tell us a few characteristics of their personality that inspired also you as an as a professor or as a and as, as a scholar, what elements of uh, that, those personalities would be? Well. Um... As I mentioned earlier on, there was one professor in the art history department in Hamburg, at the University of Hamburg, where I was studying that inspired me the way he lectured, first of all. He had a way of make bring things alive, make things, um, yeah, alive would be the right word, probably, because works about, especially he was talking about Byzantine icons, you know, they're not that alive if you look at them, they're standing sort of frontal figures, but the way he presented this material, where it was, how it was used and so on. Um, so that was one element that I was very impressed and would have liked myself to be that way, to be able to communicate. Another thing was that he enjoyed having small groups of students um, coming together and um, discuss various things loosely, not as a formal seminar, and sometimes perhaps with a glass of wine even, you know. Uh, so that was, that was another side that I thought as a professor and teacher, if you wanted to communicate something, you wanted to do it in a very personal way with the students, having good, nice sort of con- contact. And I have to say that I'm still keeping in touch with my professor from Hamburg from a long time ago. Um, so these are two sides that it's not just authority and knowledge that you want to pass on, which is important to do. You have to do it. I mean, this is what uh, presenting, you know, material to younger people to learn something about. But it's also this other side that is uh, very important, I think. And um, I have students that I've seen have thanked me for making them think about themselves at the same time when they're studying something, if they really engage in it or not, you know, how much you engage with the subject that you're studying. Um, And also one thing that I guess I had as a, when I was born with it, (laughs) as a talent or whatever it is, is to be observant. And this is what made me also, as art historian, it gave me a really uh, a good position to have, you know, to be observant. And they always say, thank you very much for uh, making us learn to look, meaning look carefully. Yes, yes. And yeah. So that's qualities that I think are important mm-hmm. to pass on. Yes, definitely being observant is, uh, is a great skill. And uh, I think it's also really great uh, what you said about all this strong relationship you build through your careers and all these people that you retain in your life. It's uh, students very nice to have contact with it and remain in contact. Yes. Yes, it's, it's, it's really important. Um, so to move on to our next question, usually uh, Jorvos and I like to ask uh, our guests to provide their definition of this series title, which is Aristia or Aristea. So how would you define Aristea or excellence? For example, in uh, hard sciences, metrics can provide a safe guide for recognizing a scholar as excellent. But 
what would you say are the criteria in humanities? Hmm. Um, Aristia, it's a word that we hear quite a lot uh, in the past uh, years, especially with evaluations at the universities and in Greece, it has been a kind of word of some controversy, I think. That's true. That's yeah. true. Uh, yes, I don't want to get into that so much, but what I think is Aristia probably is um, a, possibly a process that you go through to achieve something that you consider special, important, recognized by others that you want to, to, to give it also to others. I mean, you have to achieve something that others would recognize and say, oh, this is, this is something important that we want also to learn about. It's not um, to sort of claim some position, you know, of either authority or knowledge and so on. Aristia to me has a kind of process, possibly a process that you move towards as you... Something that you need to conquer. Something that you want to achieve, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it is... It's not something that once you say, oh, I got this position, here I am, you know, and it's something that you have to continue doing if you want to be recognized as an individual that has um, brought something to be not forgotten, to be remembered, uh, to be sort of uh, looked up by others and say something like that. You know, it's not easy to, to define this word. Thank you for, for your reply. And uh, now we'll try to take you uh, to Greece. Uh -oh. And specifically, uh, I would like to talk you to ask you about the Greek higher education and uh, all these attempts that have been uh, used in the past to reform the whole system. Uh, so what would you propose? specifically from the Greek, for the Greek higher education? Uh, what I know is from talking to other students or from colleagues and some visits that I had myself uh, where I was asked to give lectures and so on in conferences and also, you know, in seminars. Um, what I think we should rethink is how the whole structure of the university works. I mean, it needs, I think, a kind of revision from the beginning because the way that students are uh, accepted at the university, they have to give a kind of field that they want to, to study. Mm -hmm. And I would say possibly most of them end up doing humanities or uh, religion or something like that when they actually wanted to do uh, medicine or economy or something else, you know. So I've, I've seen that happening and they are in a field that they are not necessarily wanted to study. Uh, so I think we have to find a way, I'm not sure the American way where you go in and you have to decide later on what you want to do uh, is the, the best, you should have some idea. But perhaps that would be a better way to start a young man to face you know what options he has at the university 
and not make a decision beforehand, just coming out of high school or uh, to make a decision what he wants to be, because, you know, life is not always what you think of yourself, you know, who you are, and they're perhaps not exposed to a lot of things, you know, so a broader beginning might be a, a better way. So it has to be restructured somehow how students get to study at a university and then they end up also not going to the university they want right they end up being in another city things like that that complicates their lives too <laughs> that's another serious problem especially during the economic crisis and yes now and what's going on even today in the greek society yes so i think we have to go from the bottom up and start rethinking how to make the university easier to um, be accepted in general mm -hmm. and also uh, to open up sort of the study at the beginning so that they can see different things that they can find out new things perhaps that they might think that they want to study um, i don't know if you know this ba system and then post uh, graduation uh, making a more clear decision of what you want to do uh, the way the American way works you know with a BA in the States you don't go too far either you know you go afterwards for a master you do you do a variety of things uh, but I think the students learn many more things and they have many more options in their lives if they start with a broader education than just the field that they want to define mm -hmm. from early on before entering even the university. So that's where I would start. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> paid for that, but that would be a good beginning. Yes. Um, to move on with the next question, uh, as many scholars of the Greek uh, diaspora, you have kept strong ties with uh, Greece. Yes. What do you think is the role of the scholars of the Greek diaspora and how can they further contribute to Greece's academic and scientific development? You know, it's not uh, necessarily the, from the Greeks, from the diaspora to do things for Greece. It has to, to be a kind of dialogue. It has to be both ways, right? A, a discussion and an opening up of opportunities to come together, you know, because uh, uh, the other day I met with some people from the government that came here to the United States, traveling around, uh, discussing with faculty members and other, you know, uh, Greeks here, how they can connect the uh, Greek universities with uh, American universities. Uh, but what they wanted is not, for example, American students go to Greece and find out about Greece. They wanted to have a kind of synergy, something that would bring together the Greek students with the American students. And those uh, who teach, for example, like me uh, at American universities, to be able to have contact with the Greek students too at the same time. So combining and creating seminars during the summer possibly. Uh, but the, And we do things like that, but actually we do it for American students going only to Greece and having a seminar in Greece. The Greek students are not really participating in these things. So they are isolated. So this idea of bringing both students from 
together. That's first of all, very good because that's a good exchange, but also to be able to have contact with professors there and teach together with them, something like that in special summer programs might be a way to uh, introduce them to other ideas, other methods, uh, you know, things that might be, you know, as a good sort of exchange of both sides to both sides. Why do you think that the Greek students don't have the chance of uh, coming uh, on, on the other side of the Atlantic, let's say? Is this a matter of funding or? Uh, it, I think it is a matter of funding. You know, American universities are expensive, even the state universities, you know, mm-hmm. in contrast to the, the private universities are terribly expensive. It's unbelievably. I mean, I, I am shocked by, the, by the, the fees that they're asking. Um, that is one of the problems. So to create more fellowships for Greek students to come to the states or some other place is sort of one issue but um, talking to these uh, representatives from the from the Ipurion and Naftics, I can't remember exactly which ministry this was um, they felt that if we sent too many Greek students outside of Greece uh, they might remain like I that's what happened to me right you know mm-hmm. I ended up staying in the states we don't want to lose people from Greece So the best way would be to do things for Greece in Greece and have programs develop in Greece with the universities in Greece. And um, I have participated a little bit into some programs like Mm. that, but it's not uh, enough, possibly. I mean, that was their fear, you know, that if Mm. Greek students, they don't come back after that after going mm-hmm. away for some time. They don't come back to a job. And, you know, uh, I have to say that the universities were not open very much to established professors from outside to be welcomed in Greece. That I know from a personal experience, mm-hmm. but also from colleagues of mine. Uh, and I have several who went, tried it, and returned to the States or to whatever country they were. So the environment there was also not the best in terms, you know, of <laughs> the yeah. colleagues that yeah. one would find. So that is a difficulty, mm-hmm. and that has to somehow change. So we will keep the, the political aspect of things, but we will move closer to your... Um field of expertise and the question is um, in recent years we have witnessed uh, the politicization let's say of the Byzantine cultural monuments both within and outside the borders of Greece such an example is the conversion of uh, Hagia Sophia into a mosque are you think or concerned that we're living in an era where culture is re-employed as a propaganda tool Well, in this particular case, I would say, yes. Uh, it was one of the saddest events in my know, life and career of this kind of politicization of a monument. Um, and it's very unfortunate, very, very unfortunate, because it was recognized not to be a functioning um, Uh, church or 
uh, mosque, but to make it a neutral space for mankind, so to speak, to look at it and appreciate what it has, what it is, what it symbolizes, all of it. Um, so um, to me, um, what we lost there in this monument is not its architecture, that we can still see, we can recognize, it's not going to be lost. And I know that the Turkish government does care in preserving the architecture. And, you know, if you think of it, it is the model for all mosques, you know, they're built according to that shape that this church has. Uh, so for them, it looks like a mosque. So they're not going to, the architecture is going to stay. What for us Greeks, I would say, as descendants of this Byzantine or Roman world, uh, was the mosaics that were inside that are now not visible. And to me, not, you know, the religious ones we have in other churches too, you know, the Virgin, the Christ, all of this. But what for me was the most important element in that building is the representations of emperors inside that monument. And it has never been really made very clear that these are the only portraits that we have of ruling figures of the Byzantine world of the middle Byzantine period and late Byzantine period, uh, because we don't have statues, right? We don't have things like that after say the sixth century. Um, and these are the only historical documentation that we have. And it shows not only what the emperors did because they are doing something within the building, but how the church related to that. And there is a kind of balance between church authority and imperial one, which is very, very important for understanding the Byzantine world structure and culture in general. And it is um, not what the emperor wants to do, but there is control from the patriarchate too. So it is this kind of balance. And this is all visible in the mosaics there. It's recognizable. And suddenly these are, for us, the historical aspect of that, uh, illustration inside the church is is being now not visible, you know, not uh, available to anyone to see because they also are in in very interesting spaces in the building. These these images of imperial art. Anyway, to me, we lost part of our history by having them covered up, you know, as they are today. So that's an, a very very sad sad event. I hope no other, I mean, Kariya Jami, it's another building that has been, uh, that, you know, blocked, so to speak. Uh, so I hope it has not continued too much more or in other places, you know, I don't, I don't know. We don't have, uh, you know, too many other things, but the Balkans in general are very positive, you know, it's... That, that is not a place to, to worry too much about. Yes. Yeah, related to this topic is the role of uh, UNESCO, for example, yeah. in protecting th those monuments. We saw that uh, when uh, there was a need for such a protection, uh, practically no one was able to not impose, but at least urge uh, the Turkish authorities in uh, the, this specific example to, to do something or actually not to do something in this case. So what do you think is the role of those uh, institutions like UNESCO if they are not able to do that in this case? 
Uh, no, I was very mm-hmm. disappointed, I would say. I thought they had greater authority, you know, in, once a monument is declared uh, as a protected one, mm-hmm. uh, this kind of thing cannot happen. So I don't know why they withdrew, you know, silently even at the end, you know, without say, making big statements except the beginning. So uh, are they not as as uh, trustworthy as we thought they might be? I don't know. I was very, very, very disappointed. Um, and I hope it doesn't happen to other monuments, you know, for other reasons, not necessarily all political, but for reshaping a place or restructuring something, you know, we had in Egypt, some monuments go underwater when they did that lake, but still, that was a different kind of reason. Yeah, I don't know what to do. I was very, I don't know. I don't know them and I don't know people to talk that are connected with UNESCO to be able to to have to ask mm-hmm. them and discuss it with them. They were rather weak, I would say, mm-hmm. at that point. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, moving to your research interest, uh, one can see that uh, they cover a wide range of topics, from political and ideological history to the close study of visual evidence. Uh, but uh, Dimitris and I would like to focus on your interest in Byzantine women. Uh, your publications cover a span from the position of uh, women in society in general to the role of Virgin Mary in Byzantine culture. How did you become interested in this topic? Um, you know, I don't remember exactly, to be <laughs> very honest. <laughs> I don't know how it happened. Uh, but the, uh, some years back, and this was probably 2000 or so approximately, I gave a seminar on everyday life. And I want, I, I do still keep that seminar going uh, because it's one side of Byzantium that we don't really pay too much attention. And unfortunately, the everyday life of the houses and so on uh, were a lot of them so much destroyed and not recorded. That's very sad. So anything that <clears throat> would um, bring the life uh, of everyday people to focus. So I gave you that seminar. In that seminar, I had a number of women taking the seminar. <clears throat> I don't know if that says something about women being interested in that more or not. But anyway, so we discussed, uh, you know, aspects of the household objects and so on. And suddenly we said, oh, why not look at what role the women had uh, in business in society? And that came up during that seminar. And we started to collect what evidence we had, what jobs they had, what did they do, you know, how did they participate in the household, what did they provide in terms of prika, as we call Mm -hmm. it, you know, uh, and what rights they had, all of that. And that's why at the end, after three years of pursuing this, we did this great exhibition here at Harvard of the world of Byzantine Mm -hmm. women. And, you know, I'm very proud. This is one thing I'm proud of because... Uh, it is one of the few, or probably at that time, the first one exhibition of Byzantine art and objects mm-hmm. and culture in general mm-hmm. that is focused on a topic. It has a very specific mm-hmm. theme. It has the world of the woman, from the house to the objects she uses, what textiles mm-hmm. she produces, anything. You know, she's also a midwife, you know, all of that. Um, all the exhibitions up to that time were the glory of Byzantium, heaven and earth, you know, and things like that that are not defining much 
of what the society is. They bring together beautiful objects, they discuss them, they organize them according mm -hmm. to, you know, sort of material and other things. But this said something about life in the Byzantine world. And that is, I'm very proud of that, as I said. So it happened to be women because it was something also new. And it was also the time where everybody was looking at feminism and all kinds of other things, you know, that might have influenced not me so much as my students, you know, that wanted to pursue that question. So and indeed, the... came the Virgin, you know, mm -hmm. said, "Oh, she made she has a big, big role in mm -hmm. society." Okay, mm -hmm. so we saw that the empresses had the the Virgin Mary on their coins and not Christ. So suddenly, you say, "Ah." Why prominence given to the Virgin Mary at this point? So I started to look into that too. And uh, one of my studies was when does she become mother of God? that we have. And you know, before iconoclasm, that term does not exist in the images. It comes only after the discussions of iconoclasm and why she is important to be the earthly mother. Uh, of Christ to be able to be like any other mother, you know, and so then her prominence just grows. But also uh, those uh, studies, let's call them gender studies, in addition to setting light in new aspects of Byzantine society and culture, apparently had an impact also on gender representation uh, in your yeah. field. Yes, it, that, they did, mm. exactly. So uh, after that, so many other after that exhibition, you know, which was 2003, I think, um, uh, many more, you know, people looked at that, you know, and they started to study it and the whole volumes afterwards were produced about women and uh, their role, you know, and from historians, art historians, theologians even, you know, so it's nice. <laughs> what would you advise uh, students who are now finishing with their undergraduate degrees or with their master's degrees mm -hmm. in Greece or in other parts of the world, uh, and they would like to move on or persuade a doctoral degree in Byzantine studies? What I would advise them? Yes, or, or an undergrad that uh, is in, he, he or she is interested in uh, going on with Byzantine studies. Yes, they do come and tell me that sometimes. Oh, I'm very interested in, you know, what do you we looked in class or whatever that, you know, I'm not sure if um, I have a one way of sort of advising. Uh, I, I let the student tell me usually what aspect, what they liked about it, just to know a little bit more, you know, what direction to tell them to go. Um, so, um, as I said before, the field is still an, a rich field to look at, especially for Greeks, I would say, for Greek young uh, students, uh, is to understand that it is not what the Greeks often say to me, oh, this is such a dark age, dark ages, uh, uh, oppression by the church, you know, things like that, you know, that you hear about Byzantium. I want them to understand and pursue the idea that it was a society that was quite more open than we think. Although that we call it, it was bureaucratic and the word Byzantine in America has become, you know, sort of bad word. Mm -hmm. uh, 
that you know uh it's it's more like in the states when they say oh you know you can when you live in the states and born here you can become president you know byzantium had that kind of openness to climb up and become something important uh, an important person but that's not it what i would try to them is that it is the basis of what the renaissance became for example in the west all their texts their way of painting everything started by looking at byzantium that had kept the traditions kept the ancient sort of developments and histories and uh, ways of looking at nature, admiring nature, doing, you know, uh, living with that world. And I would say that that needs to be really brought out, you know, as a, as a Greek, I think it is important to realize that we come from a culture, politismo, mm-hmm. that had a lasting lasting history and we are the descendants of that and that's what we should sort of recognize and also bring to the lights you know mm-hmm. it's 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 oppressed in greece you know i feel sometimes i say oh why are you studying that that's the middle ages that you know it's a kind of it has become a kind of negative period hmm. i'm not saying you know, what about the Turkokratia? You know, this is, was it much better? No. So uh, why do we sort of don't talk about it so badly as we talk about Byzantium? Byzantium has become really a negative world. And to me, my pursuit would be for any Greek to really study, look at it and recognize its positive, very positive uh, uh, culture that it was. Uh, both of you are related, I mean, you are in the humanities, in the world of the mm-hmm. humanities, right? And um, you know also that the humanities in general have been sort of neglected in the last oh, 10 years or more at the universities and positions have been reduced a lot. Um, so uh, for both, I would say, in which direction, you know, I know you're not doing quite the same thing. But would you want to have an academic career? What do you see your, yourselves uh, sort of moving forward, being um, connected with, for example, archaeological projects? You know, or you know, heard also that uh, you're you're going to participate in some archaeological projects. Yes. Okay, so archaeology connects both mm-hmm. of you, right? Uh, so, what, where do you see yourselves moving? What is your passion that would drive you to go in one direction versus another one? Dimitri, Georgos. Uh, oh, so well, I, I think uh, you know. Uh, if I hesitate to answer your question, is because there are difficulties, as you said, in academia now. Ideally, yeah. I would like to continue in academia uh, first with a postdoc or two, and then find a more permanent. Uh, position. So I, as I say, as a joke to my friends, is I would like to spend the academic year in the United States and then spend a month excavating and a month swimming in Halkidiki. So oh, nice. what connects uh, Dimitri and I is that we both worked last year in the Lictos archaeological project. And or we invite or Lictos uh, after Hellenistic period. And we invite all of you to come and visit us there. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that as when you said in the beginning about the relationship between art history and archaeology, I think uh, 
what I like here in American Academy is that those boundaries can be can change according to your interests, and you can move. Uh, like I would, I, I wanted to explore more towards archaeology, and I wanted to participate in archaeological projects, and I had this opportunity here. And uh, then, uh, of course, things are not looking very promising in uh, American Academia, but uh, I try to have an open mind and see what the future brings. And Dimitri, please, can I ask you to? Yes, of course. Um, so currently, I'm in the end of my third year of studies. Mm. So hopefully, uh, I will finish soon my PhD, hopefully again. And uh, to be honest, currently, I'm, I'm, I'm really focusing on that. I, I want to believe that uh, after that, there will be some chances for me. And uh, I'm quite uh, keen to, to, move, to move around if something good uh, arises. And yeah. uh, in case that anyone listening to us right now and uh, is interested in maritime archaeology, I'm more <laughs> than keen to, but there's to more work even in academia or in uh, in archaeological excavation. The thing is that uh, even even in Greece, things are not ideal for uh, for young archaeologists, mm-hmm. and not only for young archaeologists, but even archaeologists who are like a previous generation than us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just hope that uh, at the point and based on uh, my skills or experience, I might be able to to do something. Or just to, when when I first start my my masters, I always have in mind that uh, I wanted to come back in Greece and work in maritime archaeology because at that point there was not uh, an available course in the Greek universities. So that oh, what made me go to the UK for my masters in the first place. Uh, right now, I think uh, the first ever course started, and uh, hopefully. Uh, there will be more chance in Greece for this mm-hmm. new, new subdiscipline, let's say. We'd like to end uh, our podcast with a question that we do to uh, all our guests. In a perfect setting, where would you like to go for dinner? Whom would you invite? What would you would order to eat? And what music would you play in the background? You can invite anyone, no matter the time or anyone. Uh, okay this is the question uh uh, i have to think just for a second i would love to have a dinner in greece first of all okay um i would like to sit outside and near the sea and even if i could to listen to the little waves that come sort of by it as you sit at Mm -hmm. the table near the water and have some octopus, some uh, other fish things, but bunya are the ones, but lately I haven't had any because they couldn't find big ones, and I only like the big ones, not the little ones. Like uh, tonos or xiphias, maybe. Yeah, xiphias, that's a good one, yes. Mm. And sometimes I also uh, eat the, the calamari, the big one, psito, yes, uh, yes. like that. Uh, so whom I would invite, you know, I would invite probably a couple where I'm very good friends with, you know, just not to have 
business discussions where mm-hmm. I mean things that have to do with my profession or and not, nothing of that to be a kind of relaxed uh, having perhaps the moon reflect on the sea also when I see all mm-hmm. the little waves come by uh, and have a very nice cozy discussion with friends friends mm-hmm. with close friends and uh, then um, What was the uh, music? Oh, the music, yes. Music. Ah, <laughs> in the tavernas like that, you know, out in the sea, you don't hear too much loud music, right? So Maybe the music is the, the waves you described. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> the little waves there, you know, this going... Mm-hmm. That is fantastic to listen to. And it's regular, you know, you can't stop it. It's there accompanying you the whole dinner, mm-hmm. uh, which is very nice. Uh, so I don't know. I like uh, a lot of Greek music. I mean, from my age, you can imagine that I, I like Hadzidakis a lot. You know, I like uh, perhaps uh, some of the Savopoulos songs or the Protosalti uh, song, perhaps, nowadays. That would be a nice voice. Φεγγίζουν όλα τα άστρα στο πανί και να έχουμε μια θάλασσα γυαλί. Να φουλάρουμε με ελπίδε και φιλιά. Να ξεχάσουμε τι πίκρε τη στεριά. Και να είναι καλό ταξίδι καρδιά. Βάλε πλώρη για αυτά που ονειρευτήκαμε. Για το αύριο προσολοταχώ. Μια συγγνώμη και ξαναγεννηθήκαμε. Μια αγκαλιά και αγάπη ωκεανό. Thank you to Dr. Ioli Calavrezou, Dimitris Karambas and Georgios Cholakis for this podcast, Aristia in 30 Minutes, where experts talk about excellence. <laughs>